is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And today we're going to tell you the story of carrots. By the way, periodically we tell these odd stories. Candy corn is one of our favorites. The, the story of the toilet. By the way, there was a day in American life when most people, nobody had them. And the story of the beard, the history of the beard in the United States. Today, we give you Jesse and his take on the story and history of carrots. In today's fast-paced world full of technology and entertainment, it's easy to overlook some of the most basic elements of life that we all take for granted sometimes. Take, for example, the humble carrot. First domesticated by ancient empires somewhere around what we know as Iran and Afghanistan over 5,000 years ago, this great little root spread across the world. From their arrival to ancient Greece and Rome, to their expansion in medieval Europe, carrots were often used for their medicinal properties. Romans famously thought of them as aphrodisiacs. Brought to America in 1607 with the first settlers who landed in Jamestown, American cuisine did not include carrots for a long time. In fact, no vegetable enjoyed less regard as an ingredient in 19th century America than the carrot. You see, carrots were easy to grow, and perhaps more importantly, a favorite food among cows, sheep, pigs, chickens, horses, and children. From there, it was a natural progression onto the dinner plate. There are over 100 species of edible carrots today, and until the 17th century, the only edible types of carrots had black, white, red, and purple colors. The orange carrots we know today were created by selective breeding in the Netherlands as a tribute to the royal family known as the House of Orange. 87% of the carrot is water, and it's one of the most sugary vegetables in the world, second only to the beet. But did you know about the secret carrot within the carrot? If we carefully bite our carrot horizontally, using care not to penetrate the center of the carrot, one can negotiate to peel away the outer layer, exposing the sweet and tender inner core of the carrot. If you've never seen it, try it out. Set aside the outer layer of the carrot so the flavor doesn't interfere with the enjoyment of that succulent carrot tender. It's perfectly healthy for dogs to eat carrots, and apparently it's okay for cats too. But I've never seen a cat eating a carrot, have you? The world's longest carrot was measured to be over 19 feet long, and the heaviest grown in 1998, weighing in at 19 pounds. The average number of carrots one person eats in their lifetime is 10,866. The city of Holtville, California is often called the carrot capital of the world. They have an annual carrot festival that dates back more than 70 years. Really, there is no place like Hopeville. People compliment us quite a bit on our parade. Uh, The parade has always been a big tradition. If you went to school here, you were in the parade, in the carrot festival parade. Well, it's good for all the local businesses. I I know a lot of the local business owners, and this is one of the weekends that they prepare for all year long, and I think it's a really good thing. It brings a lot of money into town. Recent world production of carrots was at 42.7 million tons, with China producing 48% of the world total. Other major producers were the European Union, Uzbekistan, Russia, the United States, and Ukraine. Here's Matthew Martin, a carrot farmer from Chico, California. 
the biggest misnomer is that you have to have sandy soil to grow carrots. Everyone thinks you have to have sandy soil. You don't. I have actually, actually my soil is a class three heavy clay. Um, so to overcome the heavy clay, you just have to prepare the soil right. And so with carrots, it's all about fine tilled soil, um, deep and fertile. I like to make sure I get at least a good eight inch deep till. Uh, I'm really happy if I get a good 12 inch till on it. I use a feather meal for nitrogen, uh, which is nice. It doesn't break down too fast. Uh, carrots will get hairy roots and split roots if you've got uh, too much available nitrogen. And uh, the feather meal takes uh, a little bit, breaks down a little bit slower. Um, and then, of course, I always do a, a soil test to see if I need uh, phosphorus. Right now, my soil is real good in phosphorus, so I don't have to add any phosphorus. Um, and then I uh, fertigate with uh, potassium because I've got a, my soil here, soil here is, is low in potassium and it'll bind potassium up. So I have to actually irrigate with potassium, uh, you know, every month to, to, to keep the potassium available. They throw all their energy at the beginning to grow in the tops. And then right now the, the roots are just about full sized. They'll grow, still grow. Um, but as it, uh, as the season gets colder, the tops are going to start to die off, pull all that energy out of the tops, store it into carrots, convert all that plant energy into sugar. That's what makes our carrots super sweet. Among all vegetables, the carrot has the largest content of vitamin A beta carotene, and one large carrot will give you 104% of the daily recommended dose. They're a great source of fiber, and they can repair damaged cells, serve as an antiseptic, cure eye diseases, restore liver function, and regulate blood pressure. Just one carrot gives you enough energy to walk a mile, but if you eat too many carrots, you might get a condition called cardonemia, which turns your skin orange. But carrots will not give you night vision. This popular myth was used by the British Royal Air Force during the Second World War to explain why their pilots suddenly started kicking butt and killing Germans in the sky. But it was actually a disguise to hide top-secret advances in radar technology and the use of red lights on instrument panels. And then, of course, there are baby carrots. Taking fully grown carrots and cutting them down to a smaller size was the brainchild of California carrot farmer Mike Urosek in 1986. Known as the father of the baby carrot, Mike was also the uncle of actor Gary Lockwood. And you might be amazed to learn that a lot of people still don't know that the baby carrot is basically a total lie. You see, when God or nature or the state of California creates a deformed carrot... They give it a little blender makeover and a carrot shaping machine. It comes out the other side looking like a cute little baby carrot. Saving farmers in America thousands of tons of waste. It's what we like to eat when we pretend we're eating healthy. By dipping them in buckets of ranch. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Carrots are long, orange, straight and round. You can buy them at the store, but they come from the ground. They taste good on almost anything. You can chop them up, put them in salads and cakes and carrot-flavored ice cream. But carrots also have nutritious properties. They're high in dietary fibers and
And we continue here with Our American Stories. And today, we have our Better Health at Lower Cost series brought to us by the Stetson Family Office. And Faith brings us the story. What would you say if you found out exercising made you smarter? Well, it does. And by hearing the story of Naperville Central High School, we'll find out how. Paul Zentarski was the phys ed department chair at Naperville for 26 years and a PE teacher for 40. He decided to do a little experiment. Working alongside other great minds, they started the Learning Readiness Program, which made them do physical education a little differently. Here's Paul Zentarski. We had a, a class that we called Learning Readiness PE, and all of our students take daily PE all four years of high school, which is unusual in the country, unfortunately. And all we did was put, a, put students who were struggling in a class that was a, like a, a class designed to help them get better. So we had what was called a reading intervention class, and in math, we put them in introduction to algebra because they weren't ready as ninth graders to take algebra. And we just put them in a fairly intense phys ed class prior to, to attending those academic classes. Naperville Central High School has been utilizing heart rate monitors during PE in order to ensure students are working in their targeted heart rate zones and maximizing the benefits of PE. Since then, major strides have been made by the school and district with the ultimate goal of running a PE program that truly benefits their students' overall health, wellness, and learning readiness. So what was happening? We had done a, um, what we called a data retreat at our school, and we tried to identify what could we say about the kids who were struggling in our school system. And for us, in our particular high school, we identified the low readers as being the ones who struggle. If you struggle with reading, then you're going to struggle in school. So we created an intervention called Literacy, and um, that was designed to improve reading abilities. So every day they went to the class, they did 20 minutes of sustained silent reading. If you want to be a good reader, you have to practice at it. But you have to practice at what they call the decile reading level, not so it doesn't do any good to read comic books, for example. They have to read, you know, read books that are at their, at their ability level. And um, then they were given test-taking techniques and organization techniques, and, and they learned how to, how to study better. And we found some success with it. But in our eight-period day, our ninth graders who took that class didn't get an opportunity to take an elective. They had their other five core subjects, um, English, math, social studies, uh, foreign language, and science. They had physical education in their schedule, and they also had a full period of lunch. Well, their literacy class took up their elective. So we had some parents who complained, said we saw the benefit for our students, but our students didn't get a chance to take an elective. So my principal came to me and said, would you consider running a zero-hour PE class? And uh, for those kids involved in the, um, in the reading program, and I said yes, I would do that, but my caveat would be that I want then the first period of the day to be uh, the literacy class. And he said, we can schedule it that way. 
So people involved, the reading teachers involved in the program said, we have to collect data to see if it's working, because if it isn't working, I'll go back to the neuroscientists. And by this time, Dr. Reddy had come to visit our program. And so, you know, we developed a relationship with him. And I said, if it's not working, we'll go back to neuroscientists and see how we can tweak it. Well, when we collected data using a nationwide reading test, at the time we used the Nelson-Denny reading test, the students who were in the PE class prior to, um, prior to the, the class improved a half a year more in a semester than the students who were just getting off the bus and going to first period literacy. Naperville began to gain the interest of psychiatrists and doctors all around the country. Here's Dr. John Rady, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. I uh, became aware of a school in Naperville, Illinois, uh, in about 2002, when they were on Frontline, the PBS show, uh, because we were beginning to really worry about the obesity crisis in adults and in children. They uh, just had canvassed their student population and found that of the 19,000 kids in their school district, uh, only 3% of them were overweight, whereas the national average was 33%. This was remarkable, but even more remarkable, and especially for me, was that uh, a year or two before uh, this report came out, they had 99% of their kids had taken the TIMS test, the International Science and Math test, which every country takes every three years. And they found that uh, they could take it as a country. Uh, the U.S. usually comes in 19th or 20th. I think that's a run where they scored this past time that they took it. And it's to, it, as I say, it's to evaluate where countries stack up in terms of science and math education. Well, they took it and uh, they came in number one in the world in science and number six in math. This got me on an airplane to go to explore what the heck was happening in Naperville. So this became a life changer for me, as I say, because I said, this is amazing that we could change the whole education system, the whole uh, effect on uh, students as they uh, go through school by really focusing uh, in for 45 minutes a day on fitness. How did this all get started? We started the program in, in 2005, and then I retired in 2010. So from 2005 through 2011, we found, we found the benefit. We kept data all the way through. Um, and then at, you know, after I retired, then they stopped collecting data because there wasn't anybody pushing for it anymore. And um, so for, you know, for me, uh, I started to learn the benefits of, of, uh, of exercise and fitness and how it affected uh, the brain. I got a chance to work with another neuroscientist, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Chuck Hillman. And at the time he was at the University of Illinois, he's now at Northeastern uh, University in Boston. And uh, he had done brain scans on, on kids. And he was working with kids. And if you, 
you do an internet search, uh, Chuck Hillman brain scans, you'll see a two-headed slide. Um, and each one of those scans represents a composite of 20 students. And on the left-hand side, it's students sitting down a test, taking a test, and prior to taking the test, they sat quietly. On the right-hand side, it's the same students taking the same test, only they proceeded with just a 20-minute walk, and you see more brain activity. The brain is all lit up. And so when I retired, then I became what I called an educational consultant, and that's what I do. I get, I get asked at times to go and visit districts or, or make presentations at different locations, sometimes parents' groups, sometimes a school district. We as phys ed teachers never had this in our training and, and still to this day, I think the, the kids coming out as phys ed teachers don't understand the benefit they bring to the learning process. And you've been listening to a hell of a story from Naperville, Illinois. And my goodness, only 3% of an entire student population were overweight. And we know what we're looking at down the road, folks, in terms of diabetes in terms of all the problems that being obese will cause as it relates to health down the road. And here's a school system, a single school system, using, well, some, it seems, simple methodologies and data-driven, too, to drive spectacular results, enough to get a Harvard Medical School psychiatrist staff member to fly into small-town America to figure out what the heck is going on. And when we come back, more of this terrific story, and as always... Our Better Health at Lower Cost series is brought to us by the great folks at the Stetson Family Office. By the way, take, out, take a listen to our, our hour on the life of Dr. Ken Cooper, who is a great NASA scientist, invented modern-day aerobics, and runs one of the great clinics in America. He happens to be my doctor. I'm lucky. And, uh, well, just take a listen to that story. And, again, that one was brought to us by the Stetson Family Office as well. When we come back, more of this remarkable story the story of Naperville when we continue here on Our American Story. And we continue with our American stories and return to the story of Naperville Central High School. The school has been deemed both the smartest and the fittest in the country. And we've been listening to their former phys ed department chair, Paul Zantarski, and Harvard medical psychiatrist, John Rady. We left off with Paul talking about the importance of P.E. Let's return to faith. We all know that P.E. doesn't always serve its purpose. It's become less important and not so much about teaching, but about playing games. Phys ed teachers need to do things the correct way. Uh, at the elementary level, uh, phys ed teachers are using the best, the next best game, as I call it, rather than teaching movement patterns and, and uh, proper body positions and things like that, which is important. We have forgotten as, as phys ed teachers that we teach in a place called a gymnasium 
And that's where we taught gymnastics. And a lot of teachers at the elementary level don't teach gymnastics because they're not comfortable doing that anymore. And that's, that's unfortunate. And the public um, doesn't appreciate what we do because, you know, they see us playing kickball outside with the kids all the time. Well, kickball is fine on a one or two day basis in a, in a school year, just, you know, just for fun and breaking it up. But, you know, if a, if a student hasn't learned how to place that foot properly and kick properly and, and run properly and, you know, those kinds of things, um, it, it's no good to just be playing games. And games are good for those advanced movements, don't get me wrong, but at the same time, you have to teach the basics first. So sports skills in the phys ed world is not as important anymore, and so we need to go back to teaching about health and wellness and nutrition and sleep and fitness and, and teach people the, the fitness concepts. We now know that about Above the age of 26, about 5% of the adult population uses team sports to stay active. So we need to teach things like, you know, yoga and Pilates and weightlifting and cardiovascular exercise and training heart rate zones and, and things like that so that people can stay healthy for a lifetime. Our, you know, our economy is going to be crushed by the cost of health care. I mean, I go to schools now and I see fifth graders who are 250 pounds sometimes and, and already have type 2 diabetes in fifth grade. And they're just going to be a drain on society. They're never going to be a successful citizen. Um, once you have diabetes, it's like a, uh, like a slot machine for a drug company. If you have diabetes, you're probably going to have depression. You're probably going to have high cholesterol. You know, you're probably going to have heart disease. So, so it's one more pill after another after another that's that's uh, are prescribed for you because of, of your illnesses. And that's what's sad. Because people don't know how to exercise or have good physical education, going to the gym doesn't make much of a difference. Uh, I see guys and they want to do these bicep curls, bicep curls. And, and I want to say to them, well, the only thing you're going to do is lift 12 ounce can of beer to your lips when you bend your arms. You know, how much lifting are you going to do? But Again, everybody wants, all these guys want big biceps, and it's the fault of us phys ed teachers because we didn't do things right years ago. And we're still not doing things right, unfortunately. But what does this all mean for the rest of us? Why is teaching physical education so important? This isn't just about good grades, is it? Dr. John Rady wrote the book Spark in 2013, which discusses the mind-body connection and how aerobic exercise physically remodels our brains for peak performance. One of the things that is, is, uh, I, I emphasize is that there is this tremendous uptick in research um, by schools all over the world, uh, who medical schools, schools of uh, kinesiology, psychology, uh, biology, uh, looking at the incredible effects of, of physical exercise on our brains. And it stands to reason as when we move, when we exercise, we are using more brain cells than in any other human activity. We are, since our brains were constructed 
to make us the best movers. So much of our brain is used. And when we do that, we make our brains tougher. We make our brains work better, but we make them stronger. So we think of the brain as a muscle. So the more we use it, the stronger it becomes and the better it works for us. The benefits of exercise are innumerable. It's used as a treatment for depression, anxiety, weight loss, and sharpening of the brain. Our biggest problem is that people know that exercise is good for you, but still don't do it. We're constructed. If you could take to make us the best movers of exercise and put it in a pill, you would be the most powerful person in the world. So much of our brain is used. And when we do that, we... The problem is, is make our brain... And I keep telling people this, exercise is work. And so we, we tend not to want to, you know, our bodies tend not to work, even though that's how our brains developed is our ancestors moved and hunted and, and were constantly on the move. And that's how our brains, you know, evolves. And yet we don't know that. And the sad part is tougher. We make our brains work. Most school administrators don't understand how better the brain functions. So they think that there's been if a student spends more time in a the class, they're going, they're going to learn better. So what, we're, what we see around the country is they're dropping courses like physical education and music and art for, to help science, technology, engineering, and math uh, that everybody's pushing. And yet, uh, if the brain isn't prepared to learn through movement, it's, you know, sitting in a desk isn't going to, isn't going to help the matter. It's better to start later than never. People are always worried about hurting themselves. And yes, you have to do movement carefully and thoughtfully and in balance and train for moving. Um, but it's better to uh, wear out than to rust because so much of us, so many of us uh, out there are rusting away from disuse, not only our muscles and our joints, but this has an impact on our brain rusting. And this is what we see with the, the cognitive uh, decline that we're fighting in the onset of Alzheimer's disease. How will this all affect us in the long run? We'll close with Paul Zintarski. We don't want to burden our children with being being of poor health, but that happens so many times. I mean, you know, I have friends that are in nursing homes and I go to, you know, go to visit nursing homes and you just see all these people in wheelchairs sitting in, in hallways, you know, with this uh, terrible look in their eyes, <laughs> like there's no life and, and, you know, just kind of waiting for the death bell to ring and it, it's terrible. Right. Not, we have not learned how to live longer well. That's, that's the difference. And great job on that faith and learning to live longer well. That was, again, Paul Zentarski and the work he did at Naperville Central High School in Illinois. My goodness, 3% or overweight in the entire school. That's almost not believable.
I love what Harvard medical psychiatrist John Reedy said towards the end there. Better to wear out than to rust. Many of us are wearing out from disuse. And of course, all this exercise can help prevent things like early onset of Alzheimer's. And thanks again to Paul Zantarski and John Rady, their stories in the quest for better health at lower cost. And all of this brought to us by the great folks at the Stetson family office. And thanks to Chuck Stetson for his tirelessness in pursuing this subject and all of the work he and his staff and team put into this. Their stories, all of them here on Our American Stories. We continue here on Our American Stories. Now it's time to visit a piece of American folklore and to separate fact from fiction in the tale of Robert Johnson at the crossroads. Here's Jesse. Many of us have heard the story of a young black man who went down to the crossroads at midnight, somewhere in Mississippi, looking to make a deal with the devil in exchange for superhero-like guitar powers. Legend has it that it all went down at the intersection of 61 and 49 in Clarksdale. It's a busy intersection for a small town. On an island in the middle of the intersection, three big blue guitars with a sign underneath that says, The Crossroads. This is where all the maps and postcards say it is. But is it really the same crossroads that all those songs were written about? If you ask that question around here, you get a lot of different answers. Some people insist it's here in Clarksdale. Others say it's down the road, closer to the Mississippi River and Rosedale at the intersection of Highway 8 and Highway 1. But some people around here say that the original crossroads is out in the country, just a few miles east of Cleveland, Mississippi, just south of an old cotton plantation. At its peak, Dockery had around 3,000 workers. While they weren't exactly employees by today's standards... They weren't exactly slaves, either. The plantation was established in 1895. The owner, Will Dockery, built a reputation for treating people fairly by offering contracts to laborers. Some became sharecroppers, who would work a portion of the land in return for a share of the crop. Now, the Dockeries were unusual. Mr. Will did not run the blues singers off. Most plantations, when a blues singer showed up, Uh, The idea was that everybody was going to get drunk and they were going to swap girlfriends and stab each other. And so the plantation owners didn't want that. They wanted these men to come to work on Monday morning, so they would run them off. Mr. Will didn't do that. Now, we don't know why exactly he didn't do that, but I like to think um, that since he was not only a generous man, but uh, he expected and wanted the best from people, I think that, that he wanted them to have some sort of entertainment, something to do, you know, and, and because it was so... Um, what's a good word, plain here then, because with no radio, no TV, no other form of entertainment, uh, you know, these people, the only thing they could hear during the week would be lightning and hummingbirds uh, and thunder and, uh, and the wind in the trees. And so all of a sudden these wild bluesmen would show up uh, and they had an isolated, controlled group of people that they could control with this bridge. It was a fully self-sustained community with its own railroad terminal, general store, post office, school, doctor, and church. They used the watering trough for baptism. 
100 mules could drink it dry in one hour, 25 mules at a time. But the thing that makes it so important is that when they people first moved here uh, and they got baptized in the river, once in a while one of them would get eaten by an alligator or, or get bit by a snake. So I just assume that most people when they get baptized don't want to meet God on the same day that they get baptized. So they moved and started baptizing in this mule water trough because it was clean, clear, pretty water. And so hundreds and hundreds of people were baptized there. I still have numerous people every year in their 80s and 90s come back here to want to see where they were baptized as children. This is the, uh, the birthplace of the blues? Well, you know, B.B. King came here in 1973 and stood in front of the seed house and said if you had to pick one spot, he said, you might as well say it all started right here. And what I think he meant was, uh, obviously he's dead and we can't ask him anymore, but what I think he meant was uh, that probably no one knows where the first blues note was written or the first blues song or the first blues lick, but so much of the education of the blues went on here at Dockery because Charlie Patton came here as a child. You see, Charlie Patton was born in Hines County, Mississippi, near the town of Edwards, lived most of his life in Sunflower County in the Mississippi Delta. Now, most sources say that he was born in April of 1891, but the years 1881, 1885, and 1887 have also been suggested. In the year 1900, his parents, Bill and Annie Patton, moved the family to Dockery seeking better treatment and better pay. A lot of Mississippi blues men came through to make money playing music, and eventually, many of them would show up just to hear young Charlie Patton play guitar. Charlie learned how to play the guitar from... Uh... Henry Sloan. Henry Sloan, a few years later, got on the train and went to Chicago and never came back again. And so Charlie picked up from there and began to play all over the Delta and was one of the earliest recorded blues singers. But look who came here to play with Charlie. Uh, Howlin' Wolf was a child here. Uh, Charlie taught him how to play the guitar here. Pop Staples of the famous Staples singers from Chicago was a child here. Charlie taught him everything he needed to know about being Pop Staples, he claims. He told Robert Palmer that and uh, when Robert wrote the book Deep Blues in 1950, he interviewed Howlin' Wolf, he interviewed Pops, he interviewed all of them that were still alive, and they all said that they came here to play with Charlie to learn the different um, licks and to see what was new. Uh, Willie Brown played here with Charlie a lot. He was his running buddy, and Eric Clapton says there are things that Willie Brown can do that no human can do now unless they could see Willie live do it. So, you know, it must be pretty difficult what Willie did. And so then Willie went on to play with Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson obviously got influenced by Charlie through Willie because they played together. Uh, Willie played with Charlie first for a number of years, and then they had a falling out over a woman, I'm told, and then he went to be with uh, Robert because Robert was the next big up-and-coming star, and so he wanted he was a backup guitarist. This place was important for blues musicians back in the day because there were a lot of people out here in the middle of nowhere with nothing to do with their free time and they were being paid in the plantation's own coins. What they would do is play for free, any of them, here at the commissary. There were no juke joints in the Delta at the turn of the century, you know that. I mean, A juke joint is another term for a nightclub here in the South. There were some in New Orleans, some in Memphis, but the Delta was cut and dry, life and death. You know, there was just nothing like that here. And so, these bluesmen weren't stupid. What they did was, they paid these people at this house, and they called it a frolicking house. They paid them to move all the furniture out of the house on Saturday afternoon. The bluesmen had bought giant mirrors for each wall. Remember, no indoor potties, no electricity, no radios, no fans, no air conditioning, no nothing. Had absolutely nothing. So 
These giant mirrors would be on every wall in this house, even though it was a small house. If they were two rooms, they'd be eight mirrors. They would put a coal oil lantern in front of each mirror at dark and raise the windows. That house would look like it's on fire compared to all the rest of them, which were pitch black dark. People couldn't even afford kerosene back then. And so the bluesmen would play for free on the commissary front porch, walk across the one-lane bridge. That's the perfect setup because they'd have takers right here. They wouldn't let you across the bridge unless you paid 25 cents to come to the frolicking house. So a 1,000 grown men at 25 cents, you know, you just came from Oxford, right? I graduated from Ole Miss twice over there. Some people say that means I can't read and write, but I can count. And that's 250 bucks a night. And a brand new car in 1915 didn't cost but $210. So Charlie Patton was making enough money to buy a brand new car every Saturday night when he played, if he played at a big place like this. Aside from good money, there was something else that made Dockery Plantation so popular with musicians. Will Dockery builds a railroad leading in and out of the plantation in order to feed thousands of people. One day, a young man by the name of Robert Johnson rolled into Will Dockery's plantation with a guitar on his back looking to play some songs for money. He couldn't play as good, and they had probably been drinking a little bit and all that, and so they acted ugly to him and told him he was probably a worthless uh, guitar player. So what did he do? He took his wounds and went down to the depot down here and licked his wounds all night and, 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 and paced back and forth. The train didn't come to the next morning. And that's where all the old people at Dockery said this story took place. And that he paced around at the, at the crossroads and supposedly could play better the next day. I've been down there a bunch of times, and my hair ain't turned black, and I can't play the guitar. So I'm not sure that the devil resides down at the crossroads. What Howlin' Wolf tells us what really happened. Howlin' Wolf says he got on the train here at Dockery, rode to Hazelhurst, because he had been down there before, got off on the platform. There was a woman he took a fancy to that was 25 years older than him took a fancy to her, married her that same day, and started performing there and, and, and ran into a man named Ike Zimmerman, who was a minstrel player from the East Coast that was in Hazelhurst. He listened to him play, asked him to play again. He couldn't play the same song twice exactly. So Ike told him, he said, you'll never be worth nothing unless you can play everything perfectly in three minutes because recordings don't last longer than three minutes. But he said, you got to get tight. You got to tighten up. So... What did Robert do? Robert stayed in Hazelhurst almost a year. So supposedly it was overnight, but it really took a year of hard work. Got tired of that 25-year-old woman, divorced her, got back on the train, stepped off at Dockery, and he could play everything perfectly in three minutes, his whole repertoire. But it's easy to see how these stories can get blown way out of proportion. The story isn't even native to Mississippi. It just happened to stick with Robert Johnson because he became famous. You know what else isn't native to Mississippi? the slide guitar. Just look up a picture of Charlie Patton. You'll see his hand reaching up over the top of the neck to play the slide for a reason. This is the only known picture of Charlie Patton, but the most interesting thing about the picture, he's playing in the Hawaiian style. And the Hawaiians came here to the Delta. You remember, no radios, no TVs in the 1880s, nothing. And so these Hawaiians came here because they could make tons of money by playing for all these people out in the country. And so they brought the slide and they played on top of their guitar. And so he was influenced by the Hawaiians. He had to see them as a child, you know, and, and was influenced in that wah, 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 wah. You know, we're never going to really find the crossroads. But we did find the birthplace of the blues. And we did find where Robert Johnson really learned how to play the guitar. And it didn't even cost him his soul. 
for Our American Stories in Mississippi. I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job as always, Jesse, and we love doing music stories. We broadcast out of Oxford, Mississippi, about an hour south of Memphis. And this story, well, it hits close to home here for all the people who love the blues here and around the world. The Crossroads story, Robert Johnson's story, here on Our American Story. American stories, and we tell stories of all kinds here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And today we have Faith bringing us the story of Hedy Lamar. Take it away, Faith. Famous Hollywood actress Hedy Lamar was born in Austria in 1914. By the mid-1940s, she became the world's first superstar in Hollywood. She was known for her striking beauty and her at times scandalous movie appearances. Pulitzer Prize winner Richard Rhodes wrote a book titled Hetty's Folly, The Life and Breakthrough Inventions of Hetty Lamar, the Most Beautiful Woman in the World. This book helps unpack the life of a woman that perhaps we thought we knew. Here is Richard Rhodes. When she walked into a room, she actually stopped conversations. People would be startled by her appearance. The sad tragedy of her life in a way, though, was that she was also highly intelligent. And since she was so strikingly beautiful, uh, hardly anyone ever noticed her intelligence. It wasn't... uh, factored into the kind of role she was given in movies, where she usually played some conventionally beautiful woman falling in and out of love with a handsome leading man. I mean, the tragedy of this woman was that she was, as she pointed out, more than a pretty face. She liked to say sarcastically, I can tell you how to be glamorous. All you have to do is stand still and look stupid. (laughs) Growing up in Vienna, her parents were wealthy. Her father was a Jewish banker and and an athlete. Uh, Her mother had trained as a concert pianist. And she grew up in what was a really multicultural and multi-religious a community in Vienna just around the time and after the time of the First World War. So a very cultured world, Vienna was was just one of the centers of culture in those days, and particularly of theater. And she fell in love with theater. Uh, she was a good actress. She was, a, she was smart and she learned to play roles and much more than the roles she later would play in American films ever tested her for. She also became kind of the catch of the day in in Austria. 
exactly because of her beauty on the one hand and her fame on the other. And the second richest man in Austria decided he wanted her for his arm piece and courted her. His name was Fritz Mendel. This relationship was doomed from the start. He had pursued her for her beauty, and because of that, he also was terribly jealous and insecure, making him quite a horrible husband. I mean, he had maids picking up the extension whenever she was talking with friends on the phone and had her followed and so forth. He was quite certain that she was uh, cheating on him, which, as far as I understand, she was not. So, on the one hand, it was a glamorous life uh, with with castles and uh, beautiful apartments in Vienna. uh, But on the other hand, she said one time she felt as if she was in a golden cage because she really was locked away. It was now 1934, and pretty soon the Nazis would take over Austria. Hetty wanted to get out of Austria to pursue her dream of becoming a famous Hollywood actress. Of course, her jealous husband thought it was in bad taste for her to be an actress, so she decided to leave him. The truth is, as I found when I researched the newspapers in New York and in in Vienna, that it was quite a public divorce, as one might imagine. So off she went, first to Paris and then to London, and uh, she had her jewelry to pawn to put together a kind of nest egg. It happened at that particular point in time that a Metro-Golden-Mayer, Louis B. Mayer, the director, was in London and traveling around Europe, buying up the contracts of Jewish artists who understood that it was time to get out of Europe uh, ahead of the Nazi uh, attack on the Jews. He was able to sign, get people to sign contracts at fairly low wages with his studio for up to eight years at a time. So he really was kind of buying job lots of European actors. Hetty wasn't going to be conned into uh, letting that happen to her. So when he made an offer to her after she met him in London, she basically said, no, that's not nearly sufficient and walked out. That intrigued him. And then she found out what ship he was sailing back to the United States on, booked passage on the same ship, made sure he saw her playing deck tennis with handsome young men on the ship. And by the time they arrived in New York, she had a contract for a pretty good weekly salary uh, for only three years and a commitment to make a certain number of films. So she was launched. She had charmed the director of MGM into hiring her for the price that she wanted. There's no doubt that while her beauty at times was a burden, at other times, she used it as a tool to get what she needed. She got to the States and soon started her new career as an actress. And you've been listening to Richard Rhodes, and he's the author of Hetty's Folly, The Life and Breakthrough Inventions of Hetty Lamar, the most beautiful woman in the world, and what a story we're hearing so far in Austria, seeming to lead a beautiful and wealthy life and rich life. Turns out she felt like she was in a golden cage. Hitler is storming the barricades, what little there were in terms of barricades in Austria. And my goodness, fleeing to Europe, there is Louis Meyer. Well, he's going all over Europe, just buying up contracts really cheap. 
because Jews were trying to find their way to America, Jewish actors and actresses, Jewish talent. And my goodness, we learned right away what a tough negotiator Hedy Lamar is. Not eight years, no. Down to three years, she whittles Louis B. Meyer. And for more money, too. When we come back, this remarkable life, this remarkable American life, Hedy Lamar's life continues here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and we've been listening to the story of a famous actress from the 1940s Hedy Lamarr. She had just arrived from Europe and was beginning her acting career in the States. Her first film with MGM was with French-American actor Charles Boyer. We pick up with author Richard Rhodes describing Hedy's breakout into Hollywood. There's a moment in the film, and it was really Hetty's debut in Hollywood, where she steps out of a doorway into, into a lovely kind of sunlight, and she burst on the world as this extraordinarily beautiful woman, and really became a star overnight as a result. So from there, she made a few more films with the Metro Golden Mayor. She, like so many people who emigrated to the United States out of that terrible world of, of pre-World War II Europe, was immensely grateful to the country for taking her in. And she became a citizen around, I think, 1942 or 43, after she had spent the requisite time living in the United States. While she loved her new home, the United States, and was grateful to be where she was, her heart still went out to those in Europe. During the Great Blitz of London, when the Germans began bombing London relentlessly, the English moved their children out of London to the countryside, or in large numbers they were shipped to Canada. This was the first time in history that countries were bombing cities and civilian areas. In attempts to save them, the British sent their children away. Hetty one day reading, following this in the newspapers, was horrified to read that, that, uh, a shipload of children, one of the liners that was being used to transport them, had been torpedoed by a German submarine and had sunk with, I think, 82 children were killed in that particular assault. By then, she had done something really quite unusual for Hollywood. She didn't drink. She didn't like to go to loud parties. But in order to fill her time between movies, she had to find something, some other way to occupy herself, and she took up inventing. She, in the course of her life, invented, uh, let's see, a little box to attach to your Kleenex box, to have a place to put your used Kleenex. She invented uh, some new kind of stoplight. She invented a chair on a pivot that could be swung into a shower so that someone who couldn't stand up in the shower could take a shower and then swing back out in the chair and dry themselves off. 
So she was kind of a classic inventor in that she had no technical training particularly, but she had a way of looking at the world that, that asked, how can you fix this problem, this large or small problem that exists? So when she read about the German submarines torpedoing all these English ships with, particularly the ones with children on them, and realized that this was this was Austria and Germany were, was was where she came from, and that it was horrible that 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 her background should somehow be tied in with this terrible business of killing civilians. She decided she would figure out a way to make it more possible than it was at the time to attack and destroy a submarine. Unfortunately, the torpedoes of the day didn't have any real guidance systems on them. You would kind of move as close as you could and aim the torpedo in the general direction of the submarine, or, or rather where the submarine would be when you thought the torpedo would meet the submarine, and then you'd launch. and. Uh, Almost all of the torpedoes missed their targets. So she thought, well, there must be a way to guide a torpedo. And the way she thought of was using radio. A plane or a surface ship with a radio transmitter could transmit a signal to a port torpedo that was probably, let's say, towing an end, a wire antenna behind it on the surface to pick up the signal. And the signal could direct the, uh, the rudder on the torpedo left or right and guide the torpedo in real time to the submarine and blow up the submarine and therefore pre prevent the children from being killed. While the United States had not yet entered the war, there was an organization set up where inventors could send their wartime invention ideas to the government. There were something like 300,000 submissions in the course of the Second World War. Uh, unfortunately, almost none of which ever got developed into a workable instrument. That's where Hetty turned to find support for her idea of a radio-controlled torpedo. Now, she also had found a collaborator. This was another colorful figure from the 10s and 20s of the century named George Antile, an American composer of avant-garde music and a uh, concert pianist. Antile had been working in Europe for about 10 years during the time when Eddie was living there and, and, and met her again when she came to Hollywood and he had retreated to Hollywood to write uh, music for films in order to make a living. They met at a dinner party with some friends and immediately bonded over the fact that they were both very interested in the European war. Hetty broached the idea of her, of her torpedo. Uh, Antio was immediately interested. The question became, what kind of radio control system could you use? There were no bio, no, no uh, digital chips in those days. What would actually tell the torpedo how to direct itself? Antio's music had featured a number of compositions, some of them quite notorious. Uh, using player pianos. And the player piano is operated by a scroll of paper with holes in it that rolls past uh, a vacuum uh, pipe. And where there's a hole, air is sucked in and that triggers the mechanism that uh, makes a key activate on the piano. So Antile imagined that you could 
probably make a miniature version of one of these scrolls. You could make them out of something more durable than paper, obviously. And that that device with its, in fact, he actually gave the scroll that they used in their model 88 holes, rather like the keys on a piano. So they had then Hetty's original idea for a radio-controlled torpedo. They wanted one, however, that couldn't be jammed by a radio signal because if somebody was on the, on the enemy side was picking up radio signals and they heard the signal being transmitted from the ship to the torpedo, they could, by producing a sound on the same frequency, basically jam the signal. So how do you solve that problem? Well, there Hetty got her idea from one of the world's first uh, remote control boxes that had ever been used. She bought a very expensive radio, and radios in those days were the sizes of, of refrigerators. Uh, she bought a remote control for her living room radio that had was basically like the dial on an old dial phone, but it was a remote control. And she thought, well, something like that would work. And that's where the notion of having multiple frequencies with the signal jumping from frequency to frequency in a more or less random pattern would allow the transmitter to send a signal to the receiver in the torpedo uh, that would jump around all over 88 different frequencies and that no one could follow fast enough with a jamming signal. So the signal could go through, it couldn't be jammed. Here was a really great idea. They put it all together the, with the help of a, a physicist specialist in electronics who was loaned to them by the National Inventors Council, the organization I mentioned that was there to make these inventions possibly useful to the government. So obviously the National Inventors Council thought this was a worthy project, and, and indeed it was. It probably would have worked very well. But when they took it to the Navy, the obvious place to take it once you had worked out the basic ideas and had a blueprint for an invention, which, which by the way, she and George Antile, Hetty and George then patented. It was patented under Hetty's maiden name, which at that time was Markey. So the patent was assigned to uh, Hedvig Markey and George Antile, and under that name it was, it was given to them as a protection for their invention. They then donated this patent to the U.S. Navy. And you've been listening to Richard Rhodes, the author of the definitive biography of Hedy Lamarr, grateful that she escapes pre-war Europe and the devastation that, well, occurs in London, a civilian city being bombed ruthlessly by the Nazis, and hearing of these ships being downed by Nazi submarines with children on board, well, rather than do what many actors and actresses do in their spare time, which is booze and party, not this one. She got busy inventing and trying to solve that problem. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, Hedy Lamarr's story, here on Our American Story. Mm-hmm. 
And we continue with Our American Stories, and we're about to hear the final part of famous Hollywood actress Hedy Lamarr's story. We learned that Hedy was not only beautiful, but she was brilliant as well. Her and her composer friend George Antile had created this frequency-hopping spread-spectrum technology and then handed it over to the Navy. We return to Faith with the rest of the story. After passing it off to the Navy, the Navy stamped it top secret, and they didn't hear about it for a long time. Hetty went on to live her life. She had two children and ended up getting married a total of six times, the longest marriage lasting about seven years. After a little over a decade in the early 1950s, the idea for the radio-controlled torpedo was resurrected. The technology would soon prove itself to be incredibly useful. When someone pulled it off the shelf and tossed it over to one of the many small engineering firms that, that the military keeps and maintains to, to develop ideas. And the engineer who looked it over thought, wow, this is an interesting idea. Not for torpedoes, but for ship-to-ship communications because it was something that couldn't be jammed. So the first application of the, the, the Marquis Antile invention came in the early 1950s in the form of a communications system between a plane and what's called a sonobuoy. A buoy, of course, is an object that's floating in the ocean. This particular buoy had a uh, sonar system on its underside, underwater, that would project sonar signals down through the water to listen for submarines. The inventor, who spoke of it later as a very successful invention, said this was a perfect way to, to make sure we had a, a signal that was secure between the plane that would fly over and pick up the communications from the sonoboy uh, and from the sonoboy itself. But pretty quickly, the Navy realized what an efficient way this was to talk from ship to ship. And the ships, for example, that were sent down to Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 were all uh, fitted with radio systems that used the patent that had been developed by Hedy Lamarr and George Antile. After that, it spread through the military. It became a pretty standard kind of communication systems. In the 1970s, uh, a lot of these World War II and era, that era military secret inventions were declassified under Jimmy Carter as a way of boosting uh, commercial development of these things. And this invention was picked up and used in some of the early car telephones, which of course preceded the kind of uh, cell phones we have now, but had a similar problem that was not privacy so much as the fact that if you had one car telephone talking to another car telephone on one frequency, within a particular a given city, there would only be about a hundred frequencies that you could use. That would mean that no more than a couple hundred cars could be talking to each other at the same time. And that obviously was not a commercially viable proposition. But if you could use this jumping frequency hopping, as Eddie called it, uh, which 
came to be called spread spectrum when they changed it slightly. But it was basically the same idea that you move a signal around among different frequencies. With that, thousands of cars could talk to each other at the same time. And no one would really hear more than an occasional, maybe almost inaudible blip if, if two of the signals crossed each other and, and blotted each other out. Then later on, it was used as the basis for what we call Bluetooth today and still is used in Bluetooth. It didn't become the basis for all of our cell phones, primarily because it was slightly more expensive to manufacture the system than it is for the one that's used in cell phones in the United States. So the manufacturers decided they'd rather go with something that wasn't quite as good actually, but that didn't cost them quite so much to make. There are, I think, cell phone systems elsewhere in the world, however, that do use the, the spread spectrum frequency hopping system. So, what started out as a, as a laudable interest in trying to save the lives of English children uh, became then a patent that no one saw any use for for about 10 years. And then it became a superb communication system for the Navy. Then it spread through the military. Then it was used, I think the GPS system that we all operate on these days is, is another example of, of the Hedy Lamar George Antile spread spectrum system that communicates back and forth between the satellites overhead and our, all of our ground systems. And then eventually Bluetooth, which of course is just universal for short distance communication with all sorts of smart, smart equipment that we have around us today. Now the one piece left in the story is Hetty's lingering feeling as she got older that she had never been given proper credit for this invention. You know, she didn't want the money. She had, had, had given the patent to the Navy, but she kind of felt that the very least that the nation could do for this gift she had given it was to, to thank her in some way. But of course, it had all been lost in the fact that her name on the patent wasn't Hedy Lamar. It was Hedvig Markey. A man in Colorado who is working on digital communication stumbled upon the Markey Antile patent and wondered who these people were and why their patent for this frequency-hopping spread-spectrum technology was just sitting there. Started looking into it and discovered to his delight that, that Hedvig Markey was Hedy Lamar. He had, like so many men of his age, had been absolutely, had a crush on Hedy when he was a teenager during the Second World War. And the idea that she might have not ever received credit for this really bothered him. All of this culminated in the inventors kind of getting together as, and agreeing that she should receive an award. And she did uh, in the early 1990s. Uh, it was the P Pioneer Freedom Foundation in San Francisco, which is devoted to recognizing the work of early digital pioneers. She obviously fit that category. She by then had had so many plastic surgeries that she really had ruined her face and she no longer went out in public. But she had a son who, who did and who came to San Francisco and received the award for her. She had made a tape for him, which he played to the, uh, to the, the conference. In it, she said, basically, thank you. I appreciate finally being recognized. 
But she had said to her son when he called her before this event and told her what was coming up, she, she had said in inimical Hollywood style, well, it's about time. Then her last dream in life, this was a person who really did accomplish the things she wanted to accomplish. Her last goal in life was to live to the turn of the century, which she did. She died in January of the year 2000 in her little house in Florida near her, near her, her children. Happy woman, and now she, I think she was never happy in love, but she did some extraordinary things in her life. Without Hedy Lamar, our radio technology would not be what it is today. I'm Faith, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that, Faith, and what a story. And my goodness, it wasn't the money she ever wanted, but getting that recognition by the Pioneer Freedom Foundation in San Francisco, a big deal to her, as it was to live to the turn of the century, another life's goal. And again, the book by Richard Rhodes is called Hetty's Folly, The Life and Breakthrough Inventions of Hetty Lamar, the Most Beautiful Woman in the World. A grateful woman, grateful for the country that adopted her and saved her from the ravages of Nazism. Hetty Lamar's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and up next, a listener's story from KWKC, 1340 AM in Abilene, Texas. Jay Moore is a retired history teacher who's known for his fascinating and humorous presentations about his own city's history. He hosts them in their historic Paramount Theater, and over 900 people regularly show up for these presentations, which sounds crazy, but that's what great storytelling can inspire. And although he wouldn't say it about himself, the guy is like the resident town historian. And today, Jay brings us a story from the area. It's a deeply personal one about his grandma. Here's Jay. It was after my grandmother had passed away that I realized just how deeply her lack of education embarrassed her. I think it was a secret shame that she carried. In her naughty pine panel den, there were bookshelves that were filled with hardback books. That was the room that she used the most, watching her soap operas or crocheting, working a jigsaw puzzle, visiting with family members. But I never one time saw her with one of those books in her lap. Following her death in 1992, it was my dad who came to own the contents of those bookshelves. And so one day I sat down to look over the books and see if there were any that I might enjoy reading. The first book I picked up was the historical fiction of Catherine Marshall that was titled Christie. On the first page, I saw in my grandmother's familiar handwriting that she had written this. This is one of the best books that I have read. For that reason alone, I thought I might like to read it as well, and I started a stack to take to my car. Picking up another book, I noticed 
The same handwritten notation in a 50s era novel. Ditto for the third book and the fourth book and really nearly all the rest. It seemed odd that she would record such thoughts as though she herself might one day pick the book back up and be reminded that it was worth reading. But it slowly dawned on me. She was not writing introspective analysis, nor trying to convey the quality to a future reader who might pick the book from her shelf. She wrote comments in the front of books she never read, because her elementary level education shamed her to write those fake reactions. She wrote them to throw others off the scent. When Granny was 14, she took a trip west from her home near Waco, Texas, to visit her family in Runnels County, which was about 120 miles west. On that trip, she met a neighbor of her relatives who was nine years older and who would become my grandfather. The following fall in 1923, they were married. Granny was 15 and my granddad was 24. They lived in a two-room board and batten house that my granddad built on some land that his parents had given to him so that he could farm. It was in that house that Granny gave birth at age 16. I never knew if a doctor or even a neighbor was available to help with the birth, but in the end, the baby girl was dead. A small box was fashioned to serve as a coffin, and my grandfather, alone, took the box to the cemetery east of Winters, Texas. He placed the child in the earth next to another infant. That infant was his own brother, who also had died at birth. So he buried his daughter to the side of his own brother. Sixteen is young to be a mother, much less one who is grieving. And I wondered just how my grandmother coped inside that little house. By the time she was 18, she had a healthy baby boy followed by five more sons. When I was growing up, we were often at Granny and Granddaddy's house. Upstairs at the end of their hall was my grandfather's office. On the wall was a large framed family tree that a draftsman friend had drawn for him. It was comforting to see the generations diagrammed in the logic of family connections. Their sons were the branches and my dad was near the tree's middle. But it was the first branch, the one down low, that was intriguing to me. A very short branch that was just labeled infant. My grandfather died in 1985, and in just a short time, my grandmother's sons had convinced her to sell the house that she had lived in for 35 years and to disseminate all the furniture and the dishes and the family tree. She moved to a smaller house, but before long, she moved from there to a nursing home when she was 84. During those days of her living in just one room with commercial furniture and a view of an empty field, I stopped by several times each week, and my grandmother and I had conversations. Some of them were short, but others were long enough that by the end she had fallen asleep. We discussed our family, church, what was happening in the news. I don't recall how it was, but on one visit, we talked about that family tree, and I brought up that lowest branch. Granny told me the story of the unnamed baby girl and the burial and those difficult days that she went through so long ago. 
She bemoaned that she had never visited the grave, and now she couldn't even remember the name of the cemetery and was only vaguely familiar with its location somewhere east of Winters, Texas. But she knew a woman still living in Winters who would know, and I sensed that she was asking me to go on a mission for her. That is how I came to drive 40 miles south from my house to pick up Leona Billups one day at her small home. Leona had known my grandparents for most of her life. She had me drive east on a farm to market road, and she told me of the one-time community known as Truett. The one-room school community was long gone, and really the only remnant was the Truett Cemetery. Finally, we came across a green sign pointing to Truett Cemetery, although it was actually pointing at a gate into a farmer's field. And since it was raining, we didn't go any farther. The next day I went to see Granny, caught her up on Leona's life and all about her family, and I told her that I knew the approximate location of the cemetery, but that I would have to go back and open the gate and drive down the rutted path. Granny told me then that her infant daughter was buried beside the other baby, my granddad's brother, but she said she was not even sure if that grave was marked. On my second trip south, I took a friend. We arrived at the gate opposite the Truett Cemetery sign. We drove slowly through the tall grass between tire ruts before coming to a second gate. Soon, we saw a fence at the end of the half-mile path. The fence surrounded a square plot of land with a wide silver gate that had welded metal letters spelling out Truett on top. And just inside the gate were some headstones that were visible, but others were far back among cactus and yuccas and grass that seemed prime real estate for snakes. And we hadn't brought anything like hoes or shovels to hack at that growth or to ward off reptiles. I stepped in to begin a hunt for a headstone I was not sure even existed. The markers were spread far apart and there was no evidence of any row or path like there is in most cemeteries. I gingerly stepped over cactus and cautiously examined the etched stones to see if there was one with my last name. Towards the back corner, I used my heel to push over a yucca growing right next to a small stone, and behind the plant was a weathered inscription cut into a sandstone marker, reading, Infant Son of D.S. and M.F. Moore, Daniel Spurgeon and Mary Francis, my great-grandparents, the grave of my granddad's brother. A smile of relief came, for there was the spot where my grandfather had laid his daughter nearly 70 years before. The next day, seated by Granny's bed, I watched her face register a strange relief. An 84-year-old mother who had never forgotten a daughter who had never breathed life. Granny had finally found the child that she had given birth to when she was just 16. A few days later, she told me that she had decided to put a marker on the grave, and she asked me to go to the monument company to choose one and to pick one similar in size to the one marking the adjoining grave. She said that she wanted the marker to have a lamb on it, and she had decided on a name for her infant daughter. The name was Dixie Lee. Dixie was my granny's name, and so I asked, for you? No, she said. Dixie Lee was the name of Bing Crosby's wife, 
and I always liked her. A few weeks later, I returned to Truett Cemetery, followed by a truck from the Monument Company. But because I was not sure on which side Dixie Lee was buried, my grandmother had told me to just choose one. I chose the north side, putting her that much closer to her mother. For the past 30 summers, I have returned to Truett Cemetery and to the grave of Dixie Lee. And there I've cleared the growth and smoothed the ground, marking the site of Granny's never forgotten child. My grandmother, Dixie Moore, died only a few months after she found her daughter. Man, my goodness, what a beautiful story and a special thanks to Jay Moore. What a thing to do for your grandma. And what a thing for her to do for a grandson, to give him that responsibility. She finally got to name her baby, and not too long after she passed. By the way, we're hoping these kinds of stories inspire you to do the same with your friends, your siblings, your grandmother, your grandson, your kids, to not know the names and not know the stories of your own family history. Well, that's so much of what we're doing here on Our American Stories, telling the story of America to Americans. And a special thanks to our friend in Abilene. You know who you are for sending this story our way. And a special thanks to Robbie for doing a beautiful job on the production. Jay Moore's story, his grandmother's story, a beautiful family story here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 